Blog Talk Radio. Radio. You know, when someone we love is dying, we so very much want to help, but we don't know how to do that well. We want to save them, but we know that we can't, and that leaves us feeling completely helpless. There are things we can do. It's very important to recognize that, and that is what we will be discussing in just a few minutes, so stay tuned. This is your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am the founder and CEO of the Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing the basic necessities of life to underprivileged children. I'm also a reconnective healing practitioner, certified vibrational sound therapist, and positive psychology and energy psychology practitioner at Quantum Wellness Center, my private practice located in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams to you live each and every week. My guest, Dr. Charles Garfield, is a psychologist, author, and founder of Shanti Project, a widely acclaimed AIDS and cancer service organization. A clinical professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California School of Medicine at San Francisco for nearly four decades, 
and a fellow of the American Psychological Association. He is currently a research scholar at the Star King School for the Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union. Dr. Garfield, thank you for taking time to join us here at Energy Awareness Radio. How are you being? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for having me. Ah, well, this is such an interesting book, Life's Last Gift, and it offers so much guidance on a subject that people really don't speak about much. You know, I haven't seen another book out there that offers the information with such grace and clarity as yours does, so thank you for that. This information is very much needed because it really is a scary place to be when someone we love is, is dying and there's nothing we feel we can do to help them. We want to do whatever we can. We just don't know what is right. In your book, Life's Last Gift offers the guidance we need. Is that why you wrote it? That's exactly why I wrote it. You know, it's been 43 years of being at the bedsides of literally hundreds and hundreds of people who've died. And what I realized is there are so few user-friendly resources available. In in America alone, 650,000 people die every year many of them at home, and 90% of us in this country believe that it's the family's responsibility to care for those loved ones. But we have no guidance. We have, we have more resources available on how to play golf and how to fix your car than you do on uh, how to care for your loved ones during their most difficult time. So that's essentially why I wrote the book, to provide that guidance. It's you know you're absolutely right. It's kind of like when you have a baby, they say, "Hey, good luck," but you can go buy a can opener and you get a whole lot more instruction. So you know it's the same type of thing. On the very important issues, we have little instruction, and on the things that we could pretty much figure out on our own, we have none. I think that in reading your book, giving and receiving peace when a loved one is dying, you know, is right on your front cover, and I think that's critical that people understand what it means to both the person that is caretaking, if you will, or even people visiting, as well as the person who is terminal, you know, because they know, they know what's going on. And it's people tend to walk on eggshells, but that's not really what we need to do, is it? No, we need to partner people. We need to say, we'll be with you. I'll be with you for as long as this process takes. And, uh, I'm not afraid of the situation. There are things that I can do that will be helpful. There are things we can do together that will be helpful. You know, the book is essentially a guidebook that provides, as you said, nine basic commitments that we can make to people we love who are at the end of their days. And they're, they're relatively easy to understand. And if we master those, and all of us can, that's the good news, then the situation will be a lot more reasonable and a lot easier for the person going through the end-of-life experience. Yeah, I think that things like this, even though they're difficult to talk about, are important for people to to talk about. It really should be taught in school. You know, I, I, I am currently a pediatric hospice volunteer, and I remember the first time I was in a hospice situation, the patient was an adult. No one knew what to do except to wait. And I was there for the patient. And what I did is I just listened to the patient and, and was talking to that person. And the people in the room that were there, they were pretty much just telling stories with each other because it was difficult for them. And, of course, it was my first time. While it wasn't easy for me, I was neither family nor a close friend. It wasn't about me, and I had to think about the patient, so I did. And I learned a lot about this man. You know, we laughed, and for some reason he genuinely opened up to me, and I could see in his eyes he was grateful for the opportunity to be heard. And that was a huge lesson for me because I felt like, well, we really only need to listen to be with them, present in the moment with them. And in your book, in your book you speak about the importance of being present, so if, if you would, if you'd expand on that. Absolutely. You said it beautifully yourself. It starts with listening from the heart, really holding the other person's words at the focus of your, as a focus of your attention, listening from the heart. When we meet with people in daily life, we tend to pretend to listen a lot, but we're mostly thinking of other thoughts. People know when we're listening to them, and people 
at the end of life are especially grateful that somebody's willing to be there and listen, listen to their stories, listen to their their challenges, their difficulties, their joys, their memories. Um, there's also speaking from the heart. The, the worst thing you can do in this situation is to lie to somebody. You want to be able to tell them, knowing that you can't change it, you want to be able to tell them what, the, what your truth is, what you believe is true. And then there's acting from the heart, you know, just doing the small things, doing things that make a difference, even if you think that they're terribly small. When my mother was dying, I cared for her, and what she wanted more than anything else was a particular kind of ice cream. And every time I showed up, I made sure to have that ice cream with me. And I, I could see she was just as happy to have the ice cream as she was to have me there. She was delighted. Uh, it was a little thing, but it meant a lot to her. You know, and it always is the little things, but when when we're at this point in our life, when we're transitioning, it's even more significant. And it is about coming from your heart throughout your entire life. You know, listening from your heart, speaking from your heart, living from your heart. And to me, there's there's really two emotions, love and fear. You know, are you coming from love or you're coming from fear? And in this situation, a lot of people are coming from fear because we've never done it before. And even if you believe in past lives or, you know, a reincarnation, we don't remember, so we don't know what it is, and nobody's really come back and told us this is what it's like. So it's a very scary situation to be in. And some of the things that you have in your book that I found to be very um, helpful or, you know, you provide very simple exercises in listening from your heart. And, well, each one, each one of the nine commitments that you have also has an exercise that goes along with it. How, how did you come up with, with that? Did you work with hospice patients a lot, or, or was it just something that you understood and thought this is just how it needs to be? No, I think the, I, I learned from the hundreds and hundreds of people who I sat with who died at the medical school at the University of California and elsewhere. And I devised those exercises with the help of the people who were dying. I would try something, and then I would ask, is this useful to you? Does this seem, does this seem like it works? And they would be consultants on those exercises. So each one of those exercises has been vetted, so to speak, by uh, dozens of people who have died who talked to me about whether it seemed realistic or not or reasonable or not. Uh, I think one of the reasons that the book is getting such a, a huge response nationally in a way that I never would have expected is because of those exercises. They teach people how to be present at the end of life with somebody they love. It's It's what most of us would like to be able to do, especially for somebody we care about a great deal, but we were never taught. We were never taught how, and that's that's what those exercises allow us to do. And, you know, and that's absolutely true. And when you stated that it was from you listening to, to people that you saw going through the transition in, in your earlier years in this work, you truly were listening from your heart in order to turn around and teach others and write this book about coming from your heart, listening from your heart, acting from your heart. It really was your experience that probably brought you more than anything else to write this book absolutely that it it was the good the book itself was a gift and and it's it's a it's a part of a legacy a, a tribute to the hundreds of people that i've worked with and cared for the memories that they shared with me the ways they lessened their regrets the way they expressed their gratitude all of those kinds of things that were shared with me and that I want to give back as a way of uh, honoring those people who have who have died who I had the privilege of working with. And Dr. Garfield, I think you succeeded on that. Kudos to you because this book really does, you can feel it when you read it. I could feel it when I read it. And I don't think it's just because I do hospice work as well. I think it's just because when we're people, you know, we're human and we all at some point face our mortality. And I think that your book really allows people to get a real sense of what they can do, what they can offer. You know, when we learn of a loved one's terminal diagnosis, we feel so hopeless and negative, and, and that makes conversations very, very challenging. So what what are some of the things that one can offer in terms of hope and positivity? Well, I think one of the things you can 
offer one of the most basic things that you can offer somebody is to listen to their stories, to indicate your interest in their stories. Their stories are a way of making memories. It's a way of giving to you the lessons of their life. It's a kind of uh, life review. And to let people know, just to say to say to your loved one, I would love to hear what your what your what you remember most about your life at this point. Um, what, what was most positive in your life? Uh, what were the things that were hard that you learned the most from? Um, I would love to be somebody who who heard those stories if you're if you're interested in sharing them with me. And most people will. Most people would love to share their stories. They may start out slowly, but uh, once the momentum picks up, you hear people sharing all sorts of things. I've heard incredible stories. I've learned more from people telling me their stories at the end of life than I ever did in any other situation in school or anywhere else. Yes. Important lessons about what really mattered in life. And we can all learn from that and then turn around and teach it elsewhere, you know. it is, And they enjoy having someone there who... I mean, it's showing that you care, that you're really listening to them, that you're giving of your time and of yourself and making them feel so very special and as though you're witnessing their life with them again and that it was a worthy life, that it was worthwhile, that it meant something, that they left a mark, that they're, they were here for a reason. I think all of that comes into play. Would you agree with that? I would most certainly agree with that. You're talking essentially about issues of meaning and purpose, that their life had meaning, as you say. And for people to know that, for the, to hear it from you, the, the person sitting at the bedside, um, to, hear, to hear you say that, something really, that, that you learned something really important from them and that you'll pass it on because it has meaning to you is a great gift to give to people at any point in life, whether it's at the end or during the normal flow of life. It's, a, it's an incredibly important thing to be able to say, thank you to somebody who just told you a story that was meaningful to them and that you learned from. And the opportunities that, that I've seen and have been able to take in that situation is when someone tells me a story and then I can give back in a way and say to them, well, do you realize how many people that impacted? Do you know the impact you have? Because I don't think you do. And they'll think about it and sometimes they'll say, well, I never really looked at it from that perspective. And I'll say, well, think about this. It's like a, you know, when you throw a rock into a lake, it ripples, and it goes on and on and on. And when you play a note on a piano, that sound is still reverberating somewhere in this universe and, and throughout all time and in space, and it's still going somewhere. So it's definitely impacting people. So all the good that you did. And then they have a whole different way, because I don't think people get acknowledged enough. We don't stroke people enough. We don't tell them when they do good. We tell them quick enough when they do something that irritates us and makes us upset or isn't right, according to us. But when it comes to thanking them for enriching our lives, you know, we don't do that. And I think at the end of life, if there's someone who can say those words to them and make them feel a bit better, you know, it's very helpful to them. And, and they open up even more. They, just they, do. they will. They will open up. And, in fact, all it takes is a little bit of courage to ask the right questions. Right. And that's a, a lot of what the book does is present what those questions are. You don't have to have lots of answers. Just ask questions, questions that you're genuinely curious about. Just have the courage to ask a few questions like, for instance, what are your, what are your most positive memories when you go back, say, even as far as childhood, or young adulthood, what do you remember most that really nourishes you now when you think about it? And you let them tell that story. Or if there's a, a downside, you ask, do you have any, any regrets that we might talk about? I bet there are some lessons that will be useful to me as I listen to you, and I'll, I promise to, to carry those forward and to, uh, to make those lessons available to other people who I meet. And just by asking those questions, you see people blossom and start telling you their memories and start telling you their stories. Um, and, and they realize that you're really with them, that you're with them in this process. It's a little like uh, uh, going across a bridge and you're holding hands with somebody and you're saying, I'm going to go as far as I can go with you. 
and they know that at some point they're going to have to let go of your hand and they're going to continue on and you're and you're going to go back to your life but if your basic message to them is i will partner with you throughout this process as far as we can go together it's a great gift it's a great gift and they know it's genuine too because as you listen to them it just fosters more questions you know i had one gentleman tell me that he learned how to play baseball when he was very young and he learned lessons from it and i said well did you become a professional baseball player? What do you mean you learned lessons from it? He said, well, I learned how to be part of a team and not think about, you know, it's all about what I'm doing. What I did was important, but it was for the better of everyone else, and that was something I really needed to learn. So I brought that into my business with me, and I treated my employees differently. And I said, wow, that's a great – it was really – it's really remarkable that you got that from learning how to play baseball. And he said, yeah, and then I tended to look at other things in, in games and things. And with my grandchildren, I, you know, I, I taught them when you're playing a game how to make sure that you're thinking of the other person so there can be healthy competition. It was really interesting to hear all of that because you don't know how people learn those types of traits, you know, and, and to pick it up in ways that he did it himself because he was, uh, you know, one in a family of a, a number of people, and he kind of felt like he got lost in the in the mess of kids that were there. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's uh, the the lessons that come are sometimes surprising, in that they're so important, and you wonder why you haven't learned it yet. But you know, so you sit at the bedside, and whether you're a family member or a friend or a volunteer. Or a health professional. I do a lot of training with physicians and nurses and mental health people and clergy. Um, they also need help in doing this work. They're, they haven't gotten nearly as much training as they need. And when we talk about some of these seemingly simple lessons, such as the ones that you were talking about and uh, we were discussing, we've been discussing, they light up. They, the caregivers light up and they they feel like they got something useful that they're able to use with the people they care for. And it makes the people that they're caring for feel as though they're still giving a gift, and they are. They are. But it makes them still feel purposeful, and isn't that what life is supposed to be? Absolutely. Purposeful still and still part of the human community, yeah. Yeah. still among us, still part of who we are together. And good point, because sometimes people feel as though, well, I'm not worth anything, so nobody's coming to visit me because they know I'm leaving soon. So, you know, I, I've had that. People talk to me that way as well. And I've been very, I'm very honest with people. You know, when they ask me questions like, um, do you believe in God? And I'll say yes. And they'll say, do you believe I'm going to go someplace that's better? And I'll say, I do. I absolutely do. And then we have that type of conversation because I don't think the people want to hear, well, when we get you home, this is what we're going to do, and we're changing your room, because they know that's not true. So don't give them the false hope. Don't give them the, you know, the standard line because because you can't face it. Um, if you can't face it, then maybe you just need to not say too much and listen to what other people are saying in the room and, and see if you can go along with that and try to make it a little bit cheerier, I guess. This is not probably the appropriate word, but, you know, make it a little bit lighter and better so that they do feel there's purpose in their life. They are on the planet. Until you leave the planet, you are here and you are contributing. And you need to feel that to the very end. Absolutely. You know, the two cruelest things you can do are to lie to somebody at their most vulnerable time mm -hmm. and to abandon them at their most vulnerable time. But unfortunately, too much of that happens. Yes. And I think it happens, as you, you mentioned it earlier, and it was, it's really true, it happens because people are afraid and they don't know what to do and say. And that's why I wrote the book. You know, life's last gift is essentially a gift to all those people out there. And it's going to be every one of us is going to be in a situation at some point where we're called on to be at the bedside of somebody we care about who's dying. And that's why I wrote the book, for, for all of us who wish that we had some resource that we could count on. And it's the, as I said, it's the perfect name, Life's Last Gift. I don't know what it is about that. When, when I received the book, it just hit me. It resonated. You know, and, of course, this is February, and we do uh, love themes in February every, every week for the show. And someone said, well, gee, you know, you're gonna, that's really like a death thing. And I said, no, this is a gift of love. This is a gift of love that you can give this person because 
you're supposed to love people all the way through and, and even after, but you have to be there to do that. And this teaches you how to be there because so many people don't know. They don't know how to be there for another person because they're scared for them and they want to help them, but they know they can't, so they feel helpless. It's really not their fault, but to be given a tool such as this to be able to learn from it, read this book and learn from it. And as you said, every single one of us is going to be in both positions. We're going to be in the position of the one leaving and the one being with someone who is leaving. It, it, it happens to all of us. So you might as well read the book and learn what you can do to make it as best as possible for the person who's, who's terminal and for you making sure that you're not coming from that, that emotion of fear but rather from love. And I, I think it just makes complete sense when you, when you read the book. And it is a, it is a gesture of, of true love in its rawest form in its most natural form, to be able to be there, like you said, going over the bridge until you have to let go. Absolutely. And the good news is we can all get very good at doing this. This is not rocket science. This is not nuclear physics, which is too complicated for most people. This is These are part of human capabilities that we can all learn, and we can all get very good at doing this and to be much more comfortable than we ever dreamed we could be. And it's, you know, it is the awareness. I mean, the name of the show is Energy Awareness, and it's, it's being aware and present. And practice with people that you're with. Just practice on a daily basis. That alone will give you a little bit more courage and the ability to, to be able to do this when it is necessary, like last gift. Now, many times, many, many times, those who have had issues with the patient show up to make amends or the patient asks for individuals to come to them to make peace. And that can be very difficult for both parties and everybody else who's present in the room if they choose to stay or, or no one asks them to leave. I've been present in those situations. How, how is it that the two people can come to peace in a genuine way? Because sometimes after a person passes, I'll hear someone say, well, at least they're at peace. And, and I'll say, and you too, and they'll say, oh, no, I don't forgive them. I just did it so they could move forward. I think that one of the keys is forgiveness, that if we can learn to forgive ourselves for transgressions and other things that we imagine we did or really did do to hurt somebody else, or if we can forgive other people for things that happened that Something is going on now, the dying situation, which is bigger than anything else that happened historically. And if we can just set aside for the time being all those things that we regret and forgive all of us for being less than we might have been at the time, uh, then it goes a long way. And we talk about this, how to do this specifically in the book. Uh, it goes a long way toward allowing peace to exist even when the relationship might have been a rocky one for decades even. Yeah. I think that that's, this is one of the hardest things that people have to do. Don't you? Uh-oh. Did I lose you? I hope no, I'm here. Okay. Something's going on with the sound. I'm sorry. I th what I said was I think that this is probably one of the hardest things to do is is the making peace part when there is such a situation. Would you agree with that? Yes, it's, 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 it's a challenge. And unfortunately, what we do most frequently is we back up and leave. We tend to abandon the situation. Or we visit one time to make ourselves feel good and then never come back. Yeah. Uh, that, that just reinforces the distance between the two people. Uh, I've been in situations where I've seen people who had been estranged for decades meet and and have a very good, peaceful place when they decided to tell the story about what happened and to realize that both people had a point of view. Both people had a way, a perspective, a way of looking at it. And it really wasn't somebody was an evil person or a bad person. They just were doing the best they could at the time, and they may have made a mistake, and they regret it now, but uh, they're, it's not because they're an awful person. And you see these uh, the resolution of the relationship happen beautifully at the end of life when people are willing to forgive. 
and, and I've seen it happen well, and then I've, I've seen it where it's just so sad, you know, because it, it can't happen. And I often wonder how the person who, who passed away felt. Did they feel like they got closure and how this person is going to go on because they can't any longer, you know? It's a sad thing, but I think your book addresses it well. And, you know, there are a lot of exercises that you can do to go when you go through this book to, to find out how to do things in a good way that's going to be meaningful for everyone. And I think that's why your book is so different, because it do, just doesn't speak to these things, but it shows the how-to part. That is key. Yes, well, you know, the reason it shows the how-to part and that it's – it feels authentic to you and to me and to so many of the readers of the book is because I have hundreds and hundreds of co-authors, uh, people who worked with me on different aspects of the book. And, and I, I, mean, I mean that literally. The people who died were the people who helped me do this book. Um, they helped me do pieces of it. Everybody did their piece, and I learned something from so many people. Um, it's not just coming out of my head and, and the, my best guesses about what would be useful. It comes out of authentic life experiences with people who are dying. And probably with everyone that you've talked to and, and, and met and got information from, about how long did it take for you to make this book based on all of that research that maybe you didn't even realize you were researching or gathering information when you were doing it? I didn't. I wasn't intending to write a book. That's exactly right. Um, I took lots of notes because I wanted to get better at being a caregiver for people at the end of life. And I wanted to remember things that people said. But I never intended to write a book until I realized that this was my legacy, that this was going to be a legacy project for me. You know, it's been 43 years, and I'll be doing this work a while longer, but I don't know how long. And I wanted this. I didn't want this work to, to die with me. I wanted it to get out in the world as a gift to all those people who are going to be in the same situation that I'd been in with so many people and and with my close people. I was the primary caregiver for my mother and my father and my best friend, each of whom died. And those were challenging situations, but they turned out well because other people who I had worked with prior to that taught me an enormous amount, and a lot of that got into the book. Yes. And as I said, it's, it's all in there where you can – I think there are parts in the book that everybody can relate to because we've all uh, – there aren't too many people on the planet that can say, I've never experienced anyone dying. You know, I mean, maybe they haven't been present when the person actually passed, but they've certainly known people who have passed away. And so I think it will allow people to – Take the courage. It does take courage to go to someone and speak with them when you know and they know. Everybody knows the situation. You know, it's just really difficult to talk about. But when you read your book, I think it gives people the courage that they need and confidence to go there and not mess up. And I think that's part of the thing is that people don't want to go there and say the wrong thing, make the person feel bad, and really royally mess up. So they, they don't bother visiting because they figure it will be better that way and will the person is the person there are they cognizant or whatever but i think your book really addresses these things well so that one would have confidence to be able to go and visit people and talk to them constructively and have a good conversation and not worry about am i going to say something wrong or inappropriate you know what i mean i think the chances of people saying something wrong or inappropriate are actually very slim mm -hmm. sometimes you say things that are clumsy that you wish you had said more gracefully, uh, and you know. But the, the the main point is, it's not about having the answers. It's about being able to ask the questions. You don't have to be the expert who knows everything. We all feel kind of lost when somebody we love dearly is at the end of their days. We all feel a little lost and wish we were much more skilled at doing all of this. But the skill really is the art of asking questions. And uh, th there, there are many instances where I didn't know what to do, so I asked. I would ask somebody, what's the most helpful thing for me to do right now? Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised. You, you get all sorts of wonderful answers from people. Uh, people most frequently will say, just be here with me. Just sit for a while. Let's talk. 
Let's try to be as normal as we can be. Because that's what people want. They don't want it to be an exceptional situation, which is so different than daily life. They want it to be part of daily life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, going back to they want to still be contributing to society, you know, and, and have a meaningful life while they can. Absolutely. You know, and that's, that's critical. I remember there are some funny stories that come out of it, too. And I think anybody who's ever done any kind of, you know, uh, work in, in hospice or working when I'm working on um, terminal patients uh, or even people who aren't terminal, there are some funny things that come up. And I remember being, um, and I think th- this happened to somebody, and I said, oh, my God, an identical thing happened to me. I can't believe this happened to you, too. And he was telling us that, uh, you know, a woman was the patient and the husband was in the room, and the woman asked the husband to go out and get her something. And she knew it was like ice cream or something, and it was her favorite ice cream, and it was far away. It was not close to the hospital. And the husband said, okay, I'll go. And so I said, all right, you know, I'll leave too. And she goes, no, you can stay. And I said, all right. So I stayed, and he left. And um, she, she said to me, okay, I can go now. And I said, where are you going? And she goes, you know, I'm going to go. And I said, oh, you're not going anywhere. I mean, it freaked me out. <laughs> She didn't want her husband there when she passed. She really believed that she was going to, to pass away, and she wanted to do it when he wasn't around. And I found that to be true in a lot of situations like that. When I was talking to this guy who was telling me basically the same story, I said, oh, my God, that happened to me. This woman sent her husband for ice cream. I can't remember what it was. It might have been Chinese food. I don't know. But it was far away. And she told me that she was going to pass after he left. And I was like, no, you're not. So I kept her talking until he came back. And then he was going to leave shortly thereafter. And I said, no, I think you need to stay. And so he did stay, and she didn't pass until after he left for the evening. She truly didn't want to pass in front of him. And I've seen that happen a few times. Have you noticed that? It's almost like I don't think you actually have control over this, but it seems like you do, like they just wait it out. You have enough control. I've seen it many, many times. In fact, Mm. if you talk to people who do this work regularly, uh, hospice nurses, for instance, know that it's very frequent that, the person will wait until their loved one has left so that they can leave right. at that point. And my father talked to me a lot about going home. And I yeah. kept saying to him, but you are at home. He was in his home. He was in his bed. Yeah, and that's he kept, not what he was talking about. That's yeah. not what he meant. He meant that he had a different meaning for the word home. And yeah. as soon as we left, my mother, my brother, and I left, um, he was gone. Yeah. Yep. And I, and I learned that early on, too, that when people say, you know, I want to go home, and people are like, okay, well, we'll go home and we'll do this and thinking, that's not the home they're talking about. Okay. You know, they're not talking about that home. They're talking about the other home. But people don't, they don't want to hear that, you know, so it makes it difficult for them because they're thinking, okay, well, let's just go along with, you know, we'll bring you home to wherever. And, uh, it's, a, it's important to stay open to the, the language that mm-hmm. the dying person is using. When they say the word home, they mean something else. Another thing that's important to stay open to is what are called deathbed visions. Yes. Sometimes people will see things that the loved ones won't see at all. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the health professionals will call it a hallucination, and they may even want to provide them with drugs to prevent it from happening, which is a ter- frequently a terrible mistake. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, yeah. my, when my mother was dying, she saw her parents come to her. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting right there, and she was very lucid. She was very aware and awake, and she said, oh, there are my parents. They've come to visit. And I said, I don't see anybody. And she looked at me, and she asked me, you don't see them? It's obvious that they're here. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't see them, but if you do, that's enough. They've come to visit you, not me. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens very frequently. Deathbed visions happen, and it's a way of comforting what, whatever it really means, whatever the true meaning of it is, it, it provides comfort for the person dying, and that's, that's the thing that matters the most. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of a firm believer that, you know, we, this planet is overpopulated because I think you just shift forms and energy and, and people are still around, and you can feel them after they pass. You can feel their presence, and, you know, I just I believe that people do see that because I have had patients who have said, um, things like, who are the three little people in the corner? And I'm like, okay, three little people. I'm like, I don't know. What are they dressed like? And they'll tell me, and I'll have a conversation with them about them. I'll say, oh, well, you know, they, do you know them? 
They'll say, well, they're familiar, but I don't know them. And I'll say, well, maybe you'll get to know them. And they're like, yeah, maybe I will. You know, and I think it's comfort for them, and maybe those are their greeters. I don't know, because I No, but it, what's so good is that you're normalizing it. You're letting them... To me, it is. <laughs> you're letting them have their experience. Yeah, yeah. You're not trying to talk them out of it or telling them that they're crazy or that they don't see it. They have enough on their minds already without somebody telling them that there's something wrong. Yeah, something more wrong. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And and I think um, with a lot of the hospice nurses I've talked to, they're like, oh, yeah, this happens all the time. And a lot of the hospice nurses don't want to do a drug thing because they're like, oh, no, those are the people that are coming to get them. And I'll say, yeah, that's what I think, too, you know. The other thing in, in hospice work is when you go in, I'll never forget being in a room, and the doctor came in and told the man and his wife, and it was the man who was the patient, that he probably had about six months. And one of the nurses she said, six months? And I looked at her, and I thought, oh, my God, do you realize you said that out loud? And she, we walked out of the room together, and I said, why did you do that? And she said, you were thinking it. And I said, well, but you don't say it. And she goes, I'm thinking six days. I said, I'm thinking Friday, which was like three days later, and he passed on Friday. You get really good at knowing when people are going to pass, and that's not something that you think you're going to get good at or want to get good at, but you have a really, you just, I don't know what it is, but you can almost place bets on it, and it's hard to say that, but it's so true because you just do. You just, the doctors don't. They don't come in as often, but the hospice nurses, they're there all the time, and they know, and they see it, and they can gauge the stages. And when you're in there often enough with people, you can. it's just something you become attuned to, I think, and therefore you know when they're going to have, you know, okay, they're going to start the visitation process, should be, you know. And almost everybody, I think, has that if they um, – and they do tend to, to speak it. If they're very quiet, they may not speak it. Do you, would you say, I mean, I'm thinking it's probably like an 85 to 90% rate of people who have those visions. I think that, I think that's about right. It, it happens very frequently, and there's nothing abnormal about it, yeah. and it's actually quite comforting to the person in the bed, the person who's dying. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it actually is. And pets, too, sometimes they'll say, well, they, I see my German Shepherd, so-and-so is here. And I'll be like, oh, okay, well, they must have been extremely close. And that's a good thing because it does make them probably relax more and have an easier transition. I would like to believe that that is true. Yes, I'd, I'd like to believe that's true, too. And, in fact, I've seen people look a lot more relaxed. My mother certainly was when she had her experience. She she felt grateful that the, that the visitation happened, that she saw those visions. She felt grateful. What, whatever the meaning of it was, it felt good to her, and that's that's what mattered most. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of other things were that uh, you mentioned, you know, compassion, sympathy, and, and empathy all come into play during this time. And it can be extremely, extremely overwhelming and stressful for not just the main caretaker but the people other people who are, let's say, secondary caretakers who are there frequently enough. How can people maintain their strength and keep that overwhelm and anxiety that they are feeling? How can they keep that at bay? Well, to recognize the fact that the ta- to define the task, define the task correctly. When you're with the person in the bed who's dying, you're with them as fully as you can be in the ways that we have been discussing, in as loving and caring a way as possible. But when you leave, you leave, and you go on to the rest of your life as best you can, and you don't allow the situation to to grind you to bits. It's, it's called self-compassion. Just like you're compassionate for the person in the bed, toward the person in the bed, you can be compassionate toward yourself. Recognize that this is an extraordinary, in some ways, an extraordinary situation that, that requires extraordinary means to care for yourself. We have to get good at caring for ourselves. You see health professionals who are not good at that burn out. Mm-hmm. You see uh, loved ones who go through a long terminal period with somebody they care about. You see them burn out. That's the last thing that you want. You want burnout refers to a loss of concern for the person who's dying. That's the last thing that you want. So make sure that you build in special things for yourself, things that make you feel good. And when you leave the room, 
leave as fully as you can. And when you're present, be as present as you possibly can. And I think people sometimes will, when I, I give them very similar advice, and I'll say you have to take care of you because yes. you're no good to anyone if you're not in top form. So you need to, you know, here, go and get a massage or go and get your nails done. Go play a round of golf. Do something. It's okay to do that. Please do not feel guilty. I think they feel selfish and like they might be missing something because they should spend every single moment with the person. And I think unless it's your child or your spouse, there's no need to spend every single moment with the person because you need to take care of you because your life's going to go on and you're still stuck here to suffer on this planet. So you need to be in top form to do that, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would even say that if it's your spouse or your child, you're going to need breaks in the action. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to need times where you just get away for a while yep. and have a good meal and take a walk around the block or do something that makes you feel a little bit better about being alive in the world. And and then go back and and bring a little more energy and awareness to the situation than you were before you left. Sure, it's kind of like taking a vacation from work. People don't do it because they feel like, well, what if I lose my job? You know, if you're going to lose your job because you took a vacation, you were going to lose your job anyway. That was on that was already in the plan. So you might as well take the vacation because you come back totally refreshed with a new perspective. It's the same thing if when, when I walk into a room and I'll say, hey, have you guys eaten anything? No, we don't want to leave. Why don't, and I'll look at the patient and, and I'll judge, you know, okay, I think they can leave because this person has two, three more days or a week or whatever. And I'll say, no, go ahead, go get something to eat and come back. Don't come back for at least an hour and a half. And they're like, seriously? And I'll say, yeah, don't come back for an hour and a half. You need to go. Take a break. Just take a break. And I think when they're offered that with such confidence that it's okay and everything will be the same when you get back, they'll do it and they can relax just a little bit more than maybe they would if it, if it was just a forced issue to go eat for sustenance sake. Yeah, but that's why in the Life's Last Gift, in the book, I talk about self-compassion. Mm-hmm. I want people to understand that it's perfectly reasonable and legitimate, and I would even say necessary, yeah. to treat yourself especially well during this period because, it, because of how difficult it can be. Make sure you pay attention to your own needs as well. Yeah, I think it is a must. It's absolutely necessary because, as a, again, you just will not be any good to anyone if you fall apart. Now we have two people we have to care for. You who's That's falling right. apart will get better, and somebody else who's passing, and you're going to be mad because you can't be there because you're in the hospital because you fell apart. You know, and sometimes you have to actually tell people that so that they get the reality of the situation. It's like you can gather your strength from, you know, walk them to the chapel and just sit there for a while. I'll go through meditations with people. I'll even say to people, well, you know, there's a yoga class down the street. You want to go? You know, let's go do that. If I know the person is into yoga or whatever, something. Do something for you so that you can then come back with a whole new light to share with this person and be ever-present with them. And, and as I said at the beginning of the show, if you practice being present with the people who are here now, who have no issues, they're not terminal, they're just people, you'll get really good at it so that you will be present with those people that you need to be present with in their hours of need. And many times, especially when I'm dealing with children, I'll say, who's the most important person right now? Who do you think the most important person to me is right now? And I'll say, I don't know, your husband? I'll say, no. And they'll say, your parents? And I'll say, no. And they'll say, who? And I'll say, you. You want to know why? And they'll say, why? And I said, because I'm talking to you and I'm here with you. So whoever you're with is the most important person in that moment. Does that make sense to you? And they'll say, yeah, okay. And it's really neat to see that little light shine. So if you do that with people on a regular basis, you can do it with people in a hospice situation. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, it's it's beautiful the way you're saying it. And it really is the secret. If there is a secret in the book that I didn't intend, but in fact has been received by all sorts of people around the country, it's that this book is about relationships in general, not yeah. just relationships at the end of life. That those nine commitments, if you look at them, almost all of them apply to daily life with, mm-hmm. with anybody that you care about. Uh, so people are getting the book because they want to improve the relationships they have with their, uh, with their spouses in, in regular daily life uh, or at work or elsewhere. Uh, I never intended that, but that's a wonderful uh, additional gift of the book. 
oh, yeah, it's a perk. Because when I read the nine commitments, what happened was the book came in, I read the nine commitments, and I'm like, oh, this is like living, from, living your life, but making sure that you live it this way with these people, but this is how we all should live. And, and I teach that to people. This is how you need to be in life because people think love is really hard. It's not. Love is really easy. You just have to say, am I coming from love or am I coming from fear? The two emotions, everything negative and, and, and you know, not good is in fear. Everything positive and good is in love. So where are you coming from? Because sometimes, because everything stems from fear that, you know, when you don't want to do something and everything stems from love when you do want to do it. So think about which lane are you in and now get over in the left lane. That's the lane of love. And come from that. Now, we're human. We're going to falter. But the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And it's easier. And you can take it anywhere in any situation. So I saw that right away with the nine commitments. That's why I explained earlier, the, you know, the love and fear. There's only two emotions that you can come from. Which one are you going to choose to to do with whatever the situation is. And I think that that is a great thing to know that, you know, when you read this book, it's not just about don't, don't, I don't want the listeners to think, well, I don't know anybody who's dying right now. You don't need to. You need to know you. You need to know how you're going to work in every situation, and this book is going to help you with that. And then when the time comes, you will have practiced all these things, and you'll be really good at being able to help that other person and accompany them as far as you can go together. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you're saying it beautifully. It's about relationships and practicing relationships in daily life and getting really skilled at those kinds of relationships, the ones that we all have, so that when we're with somebody we care about at the end of their lives, it'll be a natural thing, a much more natural thing than it sometimes is. Yes, and I think it makes your relationships richer because when you're with a person and you're truly present with them, they can feel it. If you look at their eyes, you can, you know, really, the windows to the soul, you know, it, that's true. <laughs> and if you're, now if you're with somebody and you don't really, there's something you don't care for, they're not a kindred spirit, there's just something about them that you don't like, be with them as quickly and easily release yourself from them. You know, just be with them in the moment and then just walk away. You don't have to spend a lot of time with them. But make you can make your relationship so much richer, so so much richer because it just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's such a good feeling. Everybody should feel that way all the time. And people just don't because, quite frankly, they're, you know, texting and, and life is throwing so much at them. They don't know what to do and they don't take time for themselves. So this book is a good lesson in doing that as well, that you have to take time for yourself. Because I don't care if you get 100 years or the people who live to 120. It's not long enough. Life is short. It's very short. And you don't know how much time you have. We all come in with a little you know, um, hourglass. We don't know when the sand's running out, so you may as well make the best of it while you're here. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself, and that's uh, in in large measure, those are the kinds of things that we discuss in the book. Yep, in very large measure, but it's good for everyday use as well. So I cannot believe this, Dr. Garfield, we're almost at the top of the hour. Before we go, would you please tell our listeners how they may learn more about you, your work, and where they may purchase your book, Life's Last Gift? It's very easy. All you have to do is go to my website, which is Charles Garfield, one word, charlesgarfield.com, and there's all sorts of information about the book and how to get it, and also lots of other good information is on the website. Great. Thank you so much. If you just stay on the line for a little bit, I'll do the outro, and then I'll speak to you off air. Thank you. I'd be glad to. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a wonderful show, and I, I truly believe people are going to get a lot out of this. And and listeners, you know, you really uh, just buy this book. It will move your heart. It really will for your own self and for future, future applications. Okay, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a very challenging and constantly changing world. That's why I have the gifts that I do to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we are meant to live productively, healthfully, purposefully, and from the point of love. This is where you find the tools to do just that. So send the links of this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they'll learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org, and you'll find all kinds of information there about upcoming shows and such. Please check out Soji Hogel's Children's Foundation, where every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need, 100%. We are run solely by volunteers. 
There were no salaries, no stipends, no compensation of any kind to anyone. You'll learn about our fundraising campaigns, and you can see exactly where the money goes and how it helps kids in need. So at Soji Huggles, we are investing in a brighter tomorrow by giving them a better today. Thank you for taking time to visit our website, SojiHuggles.org. Don't forget to follow me on both Twitter, at NRG Aware Radio, and at Soji Huggles. I am your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. When I remember how I'm blessed, grateful,